In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. I think he, you know, he has a monumental ego and he doesn't want to go down in history as a loser. He's also would like to get revenge on the people that he feels uh, didn't uh, give him his due. That's former Attorney General William Barr reacting to his ex-boss Donald Trump's new bid for the White House. I think it would be a tragedy if he's our nominee, if he's the Republican nominee. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. William Barr headed the Justice Department under two Republican presidents, George Herbert Walker Bush and Donald Trump. I spoke to Barr about those very different presidents, his view on executive power, the deep state, and the challenges of having Donald Trump as a boss. He started tweeting that, I hope Bill Barr has the guts to uh, indict or go after Biden. His behavior was different. Barr was viewed as a loyal ally to the president, who as attorney general warned about the dangers of mail-in voting before the 2020 election, but afterwards spoke out against Trump's baseless claims of widespread election fraud. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen. Barr resigned in December 2020 and watched the January 6th Capitol attack unfold at home on television. I thought it was a stupid, reckless behavior by the people involved. Certainly the president, I think, precipitated it, whether he legally incited or not, he precipitated the whole thing. Now, as Trump tries to mount a political comeback under a cloud of investigations, Barr wants Trump to stand aside. We have really good talent and a deep bench on the Republican Party, and I'm for anyone who can muster enough support to stop Trump. But what if nobody in the GOP can stop Trump? If Donald Trump were the nominee for the Republican Party again, would you support him? Well, I'm just hoping it never comes to that. Could you vote against him? Attorney General William Barr, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you, Margaret. Great to be here. You were the attorney general for two presidents in two different centuries, President George H.W. Bush and President Donald Trump. You resigned after the 2020 election when you broke from President Trump over his 2020 election fraud claims. This week, Donald Trump announced that he will seek the Republican nomination again to be president. And I wonder, what was your reaction? Well, um... I made it clear uh, in my book uh, over a year ago that I didn't think he was the right person to lead either the Republican Party or the country forward. And I would hope that he stepped down. So I was disappointed that he announced. He's facing unprecedented federal, state and congressional investigations. Do you think he's running to insulate himself from investigations? I, I think that could be part of the reason, uh, but I think he, you know, he has a monumental ego uh, and he doesn't want to go down in history as a loser. Uh, and uh, he's also would like to get revenge on the people that he feels uh, didn't uh, give him his due. Are you one of those people? That he seeks revenge on. Do you think? I don't know. I, I doubt it. But um, look, the way I look at the world there's a tremendous, the Republicans have a tremendous opportunity uh, in 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have to start thinking about what it will take to, quote, make America great again. That is, restore the greatness of, of America. And it's going to take more than, you know, bombastic rhetoric. It's going to take winning a decisive, realigning election, similar to Reagan's in 1980, that gives you the power over a long period of time, in Reagan's case, three terms, with his Vice President Bush winning, uh, to actually make some durable changes. And Trump does not have, well, first, legally, he would be a lame duck president the moment he walked into office, because he can't run for another term. Mm -hmm. And and his age. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, beyond that, he doesn't have the qualities to build the kind of unified coalition that's necessary to win that kind of decisive victory. He's a divisive person. He's disruptive. That had a place in 2016. But we have to get past the anger and the frustration and poking the man in the eye. And we actually have to be constructive. You said he doesn't want to be seen as a loser. But the 2022 midterm elections had him on the ballot in absentia in many, many cases. And another big loser 
of the midterms was this lie about the stop the steal. And in the case where stop the steal candidates were on the ballot, they overwhelmingly lost. Right. His handpicked candidates overwhelmingly lost. How do you reflect on the midterms and the fact that the election fraud that you resigned over became a losing political point for the GOP? Well, again, it, it, it reflects Trump's poor judgment and his ego. Look at Ronald Reagan in 1976. Okay, he spent four years building the unity of the Republican Party. He even discouraged his conservative supporters who had backed him, many of them from challenging some of the so-called establishment Republicans because he wanted to unify the party. And Trump has done just the opposite for no purpose other than his ego gratification. Uh, he, he has no basis for going in and attacking successful Republican governors like Ducey uh, in Arizona, like Sununu in New Hampshire, like Hogan in Maryland. They can't all be alike because they're different parts of the country. And if we want to win there, there are going to be some variation in their views. But those are individuals who could have won those Senate seats mm -hmm. and he kept them from running. Mm -hmm. And other people, because they didn't go along with his uh, stolen election uh, lie. And uh, he picked candidates elsewhere that were weak candidates simply because they were willing to show their fealty to him by, by saying that the election was stolen. And that backfired completely. You're clear in your book that GOP needs to move on from Donald Trump, yeah. as you just said, but you write, it's a quote from you in your book, Donald Trump has shown that he has neither the temperament or the persuasive powers to provide the kind of positive leadership that is needed. His political persona is too negative for the task at hand. The Republicans have an impressive array of younger candidates fully capable of driving forward with MAGA's positive agenda and cultivating greater national unity while also tenaciously opposing destructive progressive policies. It's time to look forward. Who's the best person? Who's the best person? Yeah. I'm for any of, we have really good talent and a deep bench on the Republican Party, and I'm for anyone who can muster enough support to stop Trump. And I think it's a tragedy that we have this kind of talent, and after four baby boom presidents, we then go back with Biden to even pre-baby boom. And, you know, all these people that we have from uh, younger generations, they should take their shot. We need younger leadership. DeSantis? Well, I think we have a number of people who fit that bill. There's DeSantis, there's Youngkin, and, you know, a number of the senators, I think, have been interested in running. Does it concern you there could be a splintered field and that with Trump in and a number of the other candidates that you have identified, Trump could come away with the plurality, the largest share of the primary base vote? I don't think the field is going to be as splintered as it was uh, in 2016, which obviously helped Trump. Uh, and I think a number of the people who are running are big enough and statesmanlike enough that when they see it's beyond their grasp, they will they will pack up and pull out to allow uh uh, the voters to coalesce around someone other than Trump. I also don't think Trump will be as strong. I think he has been fading for months now. And the two, the recent uh, midterm elections, I think, have really popped his balloon. Vice President Pence is out with a book this week in which he calls you brilliant. Oh, I didn't see that. <laughs> he will most likely also run for president against Trump. Um, what do you make of Trump's treatment of Vice President Pence? Well, I think it tells you a lot about Trump. Uh, it was despicable that, that he did that. Uh, the vice president was as loyal as you could be, worked doggedly on behalf of the president. At the end, the president tried to bully him into doing something that was insane and which clearly had no legal basis uh, and was contrary to his oath uh, to uphold the Constitution. And then to, for him to be dumping on him, uh, for him, you know, not going along with that is just treachery. Would Pence make a good president? I think Pence would make a good president. Does he have a chance? You know, I'm not going to, you know, start quoting odds on the different candidates. I, I like to see them run around the track a while. You don't think Trump clears the field necessarily? Not at all. I think had the election, I mean, it's in some, in my mind, it's sort of a silver lining of the thrashing we took mm. during the midterms. If you were in Trump's ear now and he were listening to you, think hypothetical, what would you tell him? 
I would tell them essentially what I told them all the way through the administration, which is that uh, if he would just, if he had just uh, exerted some self-control and discipline and dialed back his, his uh, you know, pugnacity um, and his nastiness a little bit, he would have won the presidency and had a second term. And uh, he didn't do that. He failed. He didn't do what the whole country hoped, which that he would rise to the occasion and rise to the office. And he didn't do that. So he's had his chance. He doesn't, uh, he obviously does not have the qualities necessary to unite the party, which is the first step uh, on the road back. And uh, he should stand aside. You were raised on Manhattan's Upper West Side, um, a child of academics, attended Columbia University, and then you joined the CIA as a China analyst. Now, you did this at the time when the world was geopolitically oriented around the Soviet Union. Right. What was the appeal to China? Well, the, actually, there was no inherent appeal to China. It was a sort of a calculated move on my part. I'd always been interested in foreign affairs and government service. My father had been in the OSS during World War II, and that fascinated me. So from a very early time in high school, I wanted to go into the CIA. That was my career goal. Everyone else was studying Russian, with Russia, Russia, yeah, Russia. Yeah. And I thought, well, China's the other looming adversary. And uh, so I wanted to uh, get in uh, into that field. And when I graduated from Columbia, the CIA was right there with an offer, yeah. Um, your mother encouraged you to look at law. And so you attended George Washington University Law School at night right. while working at the CIA. Right. Um, you went on to serve eventually as attorney general under right. President George H.W. Bush. Um, and in your time as attorney general, you focused on reducing crime. Mm -hmm. You handled the investigation after the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. Uh, you diffused a major hostage crisis at a federal prison in Alabama. You write about all of this in your book, and I wonder as you look back on that first time as Attorney General, what you're most proud of? Well, to some extent, uh, the, the hostage rescue at Talladega, which was the first time we used the FBI's hostage rescue team to rescue hostages, uh, it had been established in the 70s. Uh, lives were involved. I know it wasn't a big legal issue, but lives were involved, lives of the hostages. Um, who were Department of Justice employees. And, uh, you know, so the decision really, the decisions really counted. And I'm glad that went out, went as smoothly uh, as it did operationally. And we succeeded in rescuing the hostages. Everyone was rescued and you also saved President Bush a political headache. Right. So, you know, I, I am uh, proud of that, but I also feel that the most important thing was reorienting the department to, uh, to, so we spend more time on fighting violent crime and supporting the state and local governments and going after the repeat offenders, the chronic offenders who were responsible for so much violence. Before I came into office, the Department of Justice really wasn't that involved in that. Uh, but we reoriented the department um, and a lot of the programs that were successful over the ensuing 22 years before Obama started uh, <laughs> Uh, policies that increase crime again. Uh, but over the next 22 years, crime went down steadily every year and was cut in half because of those policies. So that's actually, uh, in terms of the Department of Justice's work, probably the thing I'm proudest of. The two presidents you serve approached DOJ differently, and they approached you as attorney general differently from the position of the White House. Can you describe that? Uh, I think uh, Bush... Well, first, after Watergate, Republicans generally took the position that Department of Justice should not be tampered with and, and you know, you leave it and let it do its work and you trust the attorney general and uh, pick a good attorney general you can go with and trust them. And that was Bush's philosophy. Uh, he followed, he didn't, he followed my advice. He didn't, you know, try to cut corners or get around uh, the advice and, uh, he was very respectful of the role played by the Department of Justice. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, his one of his sons was under investigation or, or, the, or the SNL he was involved with was under investigation while I was attorney general. I never heard a peep from anyone about it. 
So he was he was very respectful of the department. Obviously, Trump was a different animal. Would um, you say Trump was as respectful of the department as President H.W. Bush was? No, I think he viewed it as a as as you know like like any agency, something that was under his command and could you know he could sort of uh, potentially use as a political tool. And he fortunately did not address that. You know, did not talk to me about those kinds of things, but he tweeted endlessly about them. You know, Which I hope worse. the attorney general indicts this person. I hope, and so um, you know, whenever we tried to do something, people would look at the president's tweet and attribute our actions to president mm-hmm. president's tweet. Yeah. And uh, so it became, uh, you know, made as I said <laughs> when I exploded about it, uh, it made it impossible for me to do my job. Yeah, in your book, you talk about that when Trump was considering you to be his attorney general, um, you write in your memoir, quote, that it is the responsibility of the attorney general to ensure that the department's enforcement actions are insulated from political interference and are based solely on the law, the facts, and the equal treatment of all individuals without regard to political or personal considerations. And that Trump agreed not to interfere with your decisions. That's right. How'd that go? Well, he, he didn't interfere with him in the sense of telling me, you know. Directly. Directly. But what he, what you know, he would tweet yeah. uh, as I, you know, he, he, he tweeted. So, for example, uh, you know, he would tweet that he, you know, he wanted Comey indicted or he wanted McCabe indicted. And uh, James Clapper. Yeah. When, John Brennan. As it, when, when we got into 2020 and Durham, you know, was bogged down be, largely because of COVID, you know, he started tweeting that. You know, I hope Bill Barr, you know, has the guts to to uh, indict or, you know, go after Biden I mean, and Obama. Is there any difference between him pressuring you privately or doing it publicly? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know which is worse. Well, that's why I said, you know, his behavior was different. And that's why I asked him to stop tweeting, which he did for a couple of months. But then Oh, really? I was going to say, how did he respond when you asked him to stop? Uh, well, I have the vignette in my book. Uh, you know, he he. Uh, when I had the interview and I said he's making it impossible for me to do my job, he called up and he said, "Oh, it's okay. You know, I understand. It's all good. It's all good." So it wasn't that you asked him to stop; it's that you said that out loud, right? And then he heard that. So only communicating I said, publicly you have to stop, is the best you have way to, to stop this. It, it puts me in an impossible situation, and. For for a couple of, he took a few parting shots to show who was in charge, and then he quieted down for a couple of months. But in May, he just went lit back up again. Yeah, yeah. boom. The part about George H. W. Bush when he was president, and you were attorney general. You only met with him a couple times. A few times. On the flip side, I mean, no, one on one. One on one. Yeah. Right. So, but on the flip side, with Trump, you characterize that you know you often spoke multiple times a day on a near constant basis. Was that because the presidents had different views of the Justice Department, as you outlined earlier? Well, it, it, it wasn't just the Department of Justice. It was his way of managing the executive branch and his way, really, even before he became president, he, he'd reach out and talk to a lot of people and sort of take all the information in and test his own positions and ideas uh, with other people. And so the whole running of the administration had this sort of free, I, 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 I compared it to a card game in my fraternity when I was in college, which is somehow the card game kept on going, but the cast of characters changed almost imperceptibly. And you can never tell when something started and when something began. And that's how the Oval Office was, you know, people coming in and, hey, come on, Bill, come on in some meeting on trade. I was called into some meeting on trade. I didn't know anything about the topic. What do you think about that? I mean, that's the way he is. Now, there's a good side to that. It allows for internal debate. It uh, uh, allows the cabinet secretary to have his day in court with the the president. And, uh, you know, it adds a certain dynamism, you know, but it also ignores process. Yeah, and the and processes so, are there for a reason. Yeah, the processes are there for a reason. Sometimes I took advantage of the the free flow of things to advance what I thought was the right thing to do. And other cabinets sometimes kneecapped me, <laughs> you know, because they were advancing what they wanted chaos. to do. Benefits so it's everyone. Yeah. Chaos might be there. There's chaos. In 1987, Firing Line hosted a debate with the Republican presidential candidates. And your former boss, George H.W. Bush, was one of the participants, and he was asked why Republicans were running on a platform that government, 
to paraphrase Ronald Reagan, was the problem, not the solution. I'm not anti-government. When I was at the CIA, I ran into some of the finest, most public-spirited people I've ever served with. Uh, similarly, when I was in doing things in foreign affairs, and what is and so I'm not one who tears down those who have elected to serve their, their country. But really, I think what it boils down to is leadership. Leadership in the White House and leadership in the United States Congress. Don't blame those that make a lifetime of service to the government. Give them the kind of leadership they need, and they'll follow and get the job done. You worked under George H.W. Bush when he was CIA director as well, when you were still at the CIA. And you write in your book that you admired him in his capacity as CIA director. You wrote, quote, unlike his successor, Bush did not treat the agency as a pariah. He embraced it and stood up for it. He arrived with only one assistant. He did not insulate himself behind a wall of longtime aides. He was easily accessible and he trusted CIA professionals unless they gave him reason not to. I learned a lot watching him lift up a dispirited organization. Talk more about what you learned from Bush's leadership. Exactly that. He was CIA director for one year. Yeah. And that institution is now named after him. When you drive by it in Langley, it's the George H.W. Bush Center. And uh, he was highly regarded uh, because... He basically trusted people in the agency until they gave him a reason not to trust them. He he didn't separate himself from them and, you know, bash them and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say that uh, it was a different age. Mm -hmm. Things have, you know, evolved. It, and also, uh, he he's talking about a time where you had eight years of Nixon Ford, mm -hmm. four years of uh, Carter, and then eight years of Reagan before Bush became president, the institutions have, you know, were, were a lot more uh, supportive, I would say, of Republicans in those days. It's also a generational thing, I think, uh, as the country has become, has moved a little bit more to the left, more of the young people come in and they have different views and so forth. So, you know, I wouldn't take what he said to say, well, gee, you know, the people who are saying there's a deep state today are, you know, wrong, right? There is a deep state. That's where I, you yeah. read my mind. That's where I'm going. So given that you've worked with career professionals, yeah. so you have had a long career of interfacing with civil servants who have made their life in the government. Um, I think you're actually particularly well-suited to comment about the state of the deep state whether it exists, how it exists, what it looks like, to, to put some nuance and some texture around it for me. Well, I think the people who attack the deep state, and, and I am critical of the deep state and believe it exists, but they, there's also some of the rhetoric and some of the positioning. So, so how do you define it? Well, it goes too far. The way I would define the deep state is an increased willingness by more and more government civil servants to pursue political objectives rather than stand up for the values of the institution they're a part of. And so when people say, well, an attorney general who won't steal, you know, won't, won't apply the law neutrally regardless of the political impact, and that person is corrupt, well, so is the civil servant all the way down who's carrying out the prosecutive function who can't separate politics from their decisions. So the concern over the corruption of an institution is the same at the top as it is in the bottom. Everyone, or at least the 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 left, when they when they're talking about corruption in our institutions, mm -hmm. such as the Justice Department, they're talking about the political leadership mm -hmm. not being able to separate politics from the professional judgments they make, mm -hmm. right? that an attorney general prosecutes someone even though it doesn't meet our standards at the department because it's of its political effect. They say that's bad. You're, the, you're talking about how what people accused you of. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that's how that's how the left thinks of it. Uh -huh. People who are worried about the deep state recognize that that doesn't only apply to the political appointees. It also applies to the people down in the agencies who are making these decisions in the first instance, like the line prosecutor. If they can't separate 
the politics from their decision. Uh -huh. That's corruption too. And the problem with it, and so there are people increasingly in the departments, I think, uh, who are more willing to conduct their jobs to advance political agenda. They are not neutral. They're not politically neutral. How prolific is this problem? It's increasing, I think. I mean, is there a way to categorize but, it? Or do the, w w but on the other side of the ledger, okay, is that I think there's an exaggeration of its pervasiveness. It's bad. Uh -huh. It does pervert government. But I still think the vast majority of civil servants try to do an honest job and try to check their politics at the door. And I think that tr that President Bush's quote that you played mm -hmm. is right on the money. The most important thing is leadership. Mm. And um, I said, even during the Trump administration, and it was certainly my experience most of the time, uh, is that when you provide clear guidance and goals and... Uh, you know, people are confident that you are, you know, acting in good faith and not politically mm -hmm. on a criminal matter, people will, the, the institution will deliver for you. You can move the institution. And uh, I think people who come in to run the government and to try to govern, who treat government employees as pariahs are, are not doing their job. But I think the civil service laws have to be changed to enable a president to make changes, to move people around, to move people from sensitive positions where they, where he feels they're not carrying out his or her agenda uh, to other positions. And right now, the civil service laws restrict the ability of the president to manage his team and in, in sensitive positions. There was a... a an executive order towards the end of the Trump administration that would have allowed for far more political appointees and far fewer civil servants. Um, it was going to increase the number of Schedule Cs. Mm -hmm. um, that was that would have been a good step. And there's also proposals to increase another category of people who can be moved around and, and so forth. Uh, and uh, What's all the right balance then between the continuity of civil servants and political appointees who are in and out with every administration. Well, you, well, you're right in saying it's a question of balance, which means it's a question of realizing that any any power you exercise will be exercised by your opponents next time they hold office. So it is that sort of mutually assured destruction that in a way counsels prudence in how far you go, but it has to be a balance. And right now the thing out is out of whack. It's completely out of whack. And, you know, the president has to be able to, to carry out uh, his or her policies without being sabotaged by people in his own branch of government. Can you give me examples or give, give the audience examples? Because I hear you say this. What's an example? Well, examples are leaks. Examples are leaks. Leaks uh, happen numerous times under uh, and that's how the, the the political players in the bureaucracy exercise power. They see something happening they don't like, and they leak it to sympathetic reporter and give it a twist that uh, that essentially uh, destroys the initiative. And that was your experience in justice, because because what we all know is from covering the White House, the, the leaking was happening from the political staff, not the civil servants. Yeah, but well, in 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 my area, there were uh, leaks about investigations, uh, uh -huh. and uh, which were done by career employees, not political appointees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You um, yourself were accused by Lou Dobbs of being part of the deep state. Of course, this was after you announced that there was not widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. So perhaps this is an example of the the extreme use of the term deep state by the far right? Right. I, you know, I, I think uh, anyone who, anyone who uh, well. I mean, in some ways, the deep state is just used to, to, to point out people you disagree with. Well, sort of like rhino, you know, Republican in name only. Never heard of it. No, I'm joking. I'm constantly called a rhino. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about rhino. You were called a, a rhino. You were called a rhino well, by President, President Trump. President calls me rhino President on Trump a regular basis. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I, I object to that in a way because... <laughs> 
I was a conservative Republican before it was cool. You know, I was handing out Barry Goldwater literature when I was 14 years old in the Upper West Side of New York. And like many, most of the people the president calls rhinos, are people who don't agree with him. Are Reagan Republicans who have worked hard for decades laboring in the vineyards of the Republican Party while he, Trump, was flitting around, uh, you know, uh, from ideology to ideology with no idea of why he was doing it. And, uh, you know, for him to call those people rhino is not because of policy, you know, their principles. It's it's because they did not agree with him that the election was stolen. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, okay. You've long been concerned about protecting executive power. Yes. Uh, you write about, actually, that the subject came up when you were interviewing for a law clerkship in 1970. What is your view about the threat to executive power? Well, uh, you know, I think since Watergate in Vietnam, there was a steady assault on presidential prerogative. And the idea grew up that, you know, the least dangerous branches were the courts and uh, especially Congress, the people's branch, and that politics was all about reining in the power of the president who could be a tyrant. Mm -hmm. Okay. That came from the English history, the Whig tradition. And, but in the United States, we adopted a Whiggish constitution to limit the powers of the president. It's a very democratic, it, it, it's, there's not a threat of a tyrannical president, you know, taking over the United States. The, prop, the reason they created a strong president was to represent all the people and actually place limits and can help uh, hem in an overzealous legislature. And also to exercise broad discretion in foreign policy, national defense, intelligence issues to protect the country. And the more they've weakened the president, the, the, the weaker we have become in being able to manage foreign affairs and defense. So do you think when Trump came into the presidency, it was weaker? Because there were conservatives who argued that the presidency had become an imperial presidency by the end of the Bush and then Obama presidencies. Well, you know, a lot of my perspective relates to foreign policy and national defense realms, which is where the president should be and uh, should have much more power. So uh, an example would be taking prisoners in our war against terror in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so forth. We, we don't take prisoners anymore in the United States. Mm -hmm. We don't shoot them. We just let them go. It's catch and release because we don't know what to do with prisoners mm -hmm. because the power of the president as commander in chief has been eroded. That's just an example of, of how attacks on presidential discretion in these areas is having an effect on our ability well, to deal with We didn't keep them in the trauma. U.S., but we kept them in Guantanamo Bay. Well, right. So we didn't keep them for some time. Those were only a limited number of the prisoners. But in, in fighting uh, in Afghanistan after that, in Iraq, we didn't put our prisoners in there. Right. We basically turned them over to other people when we felt they had to be detained and that's or a, we let them go. And that's because whole, the presidency wasn't strong enough? That's an example, yes. Okay. Well, the president, uh, President W. Bush, wanted to set up military tribunals to try mm -hmm. court martials, mm -hmm. which, which we used in World War II. And it was throttled by both Congress and by, by uh, the courts. That's an example of what I mean. Is that concern about the executive branch being strong enough and having a sufficient um, degree of, of power behind it, the same concern that you harbored when you wrote your memo in June 2018 to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein about the Mueller investigation? Were those concerns similar concerns? Yes, um, because what that would have involved is saying that any executive branch official from the president on down, the attorney general, but a line prosecutor in the, in the case of the Department of Justice, who exercised discretion in an area that is their job, mm -hmm. You should stop this case. You should start this case, right? This case has to be moved from here to here. Actions that are not in themselves obstructive of justice, they're part of the process that they have discretion over. And then if you say, but if you take that act and you're 
subjective state of mind is bad inside your mind, you're doing it for a bad reason, it's a criminal offense. And that's a big leap in the law in that context. And that's what your memo was about to attorney Right, because what that would do was paralyze executive branch officials who are trying to do their job because they have to look at every time they exercise discretion uh, to make sure that no one's going to come along and accuse them of having a bad motive. Because if you're accused of having a bad motive, all of a sudden you're facing a grand jury and a criminal investigation. It would just paralyze government. So it w- was, is there a, is it, it, to put more sort of generally, is it a concern also about what could be a hyper-politicization of the process? Or is it really just about where power is? Well, power and politicization are the same thing in some extent, because in this context, what it's about is you would be taking the criminal justice process and allowing anyone to use it as a political weapon simply by accusing a government official, again, from the president on down, saying, well, you did this for a bad a bad motive. and mm-hmm. uh, uh, You took that action. Usually, obstruction requires some inherently obstructive act, like burning documents or telling a witness you should lie. Okay, there's not much question about what someone's state of mind is there. But if you take a perfectly innocent act on its face and say it becomes a crime just because of your state of mind, you're running the risk of paralyzing the exercise of that discretion. I've never heard you explain it like that, actually. Um, Let me ask you about something you referred to earlier. Um, You were referring to President Trump's tweeting and sort of open, I mean, I would call it sort of open bullying about what the Department of Justice should be doing. Um, Trump publicly expressed disapproval for how justice handled Michael Flynn and Roger Stone. And under your tenure, the Department of Justice dropped the prosecution against General Flynn. And then in the case of Stone, overruled prosecutors by lowering the recommended sentencing of prison time. What do you say to the critics who point that DOJ charged approximately 80,000 cases in your tenure per year, and that only two got set aside that happened to be the ones that President Trump was most audible on. And the optics of that being a political decision, how do you how do you engage with that argument? Well, people don't know what was set aside and what wasn't, but in the Department of Justice, tough decisions are elevated or where there's a disagreement over a decision, it's elevated and eventually it finds its way to the attorney general who has to make a decision. And in both of those cases, there were events that brought those matters to my desk. And as I explain in my book, and I go through all the details of both episodes, Uh, As I explained in my book, what I tried to do in every case was do what I thought was right under our standards of the Department of Justice and even-handed justice. And I couldn't allow the fact that the president was tweeting about stuff prevent me from doing that. And in the case, for example, of Stone, where uh, the judgment uh, was that... uh, the appropriate sentence and everyone else in, who, who had done those kinds of things that he was convicted of would have gotten three and a half years. And the prosecution team that had come out of Mueller's group, which I felt had had run an irresponsible investigation in many areas, uh, th- they were, you know, two to three times that, seven to nine years they were seeking for him. And there was a disagreement in that office. And so it was brought to me and... Just as it was brought to me, the president, and and actually before uh, it was uh, the president's tweet, I told people, we're going to have to just not take a position on the sentence, but I'm not going to affirmatively recommend something three times heavier. And uh, the president tweeted it. And I said at the time, I can't allow the fact that the president just tweeted to deter me from making the decision that I think is right. And the same was true uh, in the Flynn case. So knowing that the optics risked looking as though it was political, you went ahead that's and... The, that's the attorney general's job. Yeah. If the attorney general starts saying, you know, how is this going to... You know, am I going to be attacked if I do this? And then doesn't do what he think is right? That's not the kind of attorney general you want. You want an attorney general who will do, try to do the right thing regardless of the cost to themselves. And uh, I knew I was going to get ripped 
on that stuff. Did he really never talk to you about all the stuff he was tweeting about? No, I, in the book, I, I discussed the one time that I can recall him, you know, actually trying to get into the merits of something, you know, while it was going on. I mean, he bitched about stuff after the fact sometimes. Which time was that? That he bitched at me? No, which time? No. Which time was so it that in he... October, right before the election, he's, he tried to raise the top, you know, he called me and he was trying to raise the, he started talking about Hunter Biden. And I didn't want to hear what was coming. And I told him, I told him, I didn't, he wasn't going to talk about it. And I yelled at him about it and hung up, the, and he hung up the phone. Oh, and I hung up the right. phone. That's right. That's right. I recall that. Um, but, but never about Roger Stone, never about Flynn. No. He never talked to you about that. Not, especially not before those events happened, yeah. Is it is it true? I've heard, I mean, I've talked to people who know you who say that one of the reasons you took the job is you were concerned about the politicization of the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. it, is that true? Not the politicization. Uh, what I was concerned about is the use of the criminal justice process in the department to interfere in politics. And that start, and, and I thought since... Watergate, there had been a lot of that on both sides, you know. And if, you know, you turn on the television of, of programs back, uh, you know, in the 60s and, and compare them to today, today it's all talking heads talking about whether this person committed a crime or this. Everything has to, you know, be a crime now. It can't just be disagreement. It can't be that the person, you know, made an honest decision. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's that they're a criminal. They're criminal. When is these, one of these people going to be thrown into jail? That's what I object to. And I thought bringing, uh, you know, this idea of going after Trump uh, first on the Russia collusion thing didn't pan out. I mean, it was the way, the way uh, I think by the time Mueller came in, the writing was on the wall that it was just nonsense. And, it kept, and he kept it going for two years, mostly on this obstruction nonsense. And so I didn't like the way uh, politics was being injected into the work of the Department of Justice and the department was becoming a political football. How do you think you left it? Well, uh... Did you leave the department better in that sense? Well, certainly the department didn't get involved in trying to torque the election, you know? Well, <laughs> we tried. while you were there. Well, and, and after I left. But, Be well, because before Jeff I Clark left... And the t the team I had were were very solid. I knew that. I brought in additional people. Yeah, but then some other people moved into positions of authority and were back channeling with John Eastman and others. Yeah, and they failed. They failed because the lawyers at the department, of, the political lawyers at the Department of Justice and at the White House, wouldn't go go for that. How important is character in, in a, a in a president? From your position as having been Attorney General twice. Well, I think, you know, I think it's extremely important. Uh, the character is very important. But when, but when we live in an age where the political differences are so polarized and the swings between sort of almost socialism and more conservative Republican policies, and there's a broad swing, I think you have to look at that just as importantly. So, for example, a progressive Democrat as an individual might have a lot of character more than the Republican candidate. I would not cast my vote just based on their character. I would also, I would look at the impact on the United States and what it means for the country. But character is more important than ideology? Or as important as a ideology? As important. Nowadays, yes. Really? Well, think about it. You know, we're, we're facing a very dangerous world right now. If a, if a pacifist who wasn't going to invest in our armed forces and was going to take actions which almost invited foreign aggression was nevertheless a really good guy and a solid citizen, would that take priority over someone who may not not be as, uh, uh, you know, have as strong a character but is absolutely right on those policies? I think you, I think as a voter, you should, you should say what, you know, is the impact on the country? Uh, of this person leading the country for the next four years. Some of our great presidents have not been moral exemplars. <laughs> no, I think, I, think, I, I, I think the question of character is important, but then it's also a question of um, 
in that character are you going to be faithful to the laws and the Constitution? Well, I mean, we talk about character. I was thinking broadly of it. Obviously, it's very important that a president, you know, the president is in charge of the executive branch, and he is the top law enforcement official. Mm -hmm. But what's critical for our country and for our system of government is that the law be applied equally, especially in the criminal justice system. Yeah. And the president has to respect that, yeah. that you cannot use the criminal justice system as a political weapon. Yeah. Um, you gave a widely covered speech at Notre Dame in 2019, mm-hmm. um, where you took on how you, what you characterize as an especially aggressive form of secularism uh, in defense of religious liberty. Um, and, and you spoke about how you saw the law being used as a weapon against religious liberty. Mm-hmm. The Senate is voting this week on a bipartisan bill to codify same-sex marriage while also protecting religious freedom in an amendment that has the support of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Republican senators like Mitt Romney that provides a balance for protecting religious freedom in the context of codifying same-sex marriage into law. Is something like this a way through some of the culture wars that you were pointing to in that speech? I, th- I think the way through is to have a live and let li- to recognize we're a diverse society, and we need to all have a live and let live attitude. And I think the people who don't have it are the secular progressive forces, who it's not enough for them to say you can have same sex marriage. That bridge has been crossed. I don't have a problem with it. You know, I don't have no desire to go back and undo it. Uh, the question is whether. That is now going to be taken to categorize Christian groups or other religious groups, including Muslim, who don't believe in it, as hate groups or their objections to it as hate speech or requirements that they teach uh, that in their schools, their religiously affiliated schools. And I say, no, you have to let them live their life and not use the power of the government to force them to do things that are contrary to their conscience. Isn't this an example? If this bill were to pass a same-sex marriage bill codified into law, not not simply by a, what a Supreme Court has said previously in the past, but actually a law that codifies what had been viewed as a progressive tenant, but then bakes into it protections to religious freedom that is that are condoned by major religious institutions in this unite in this country. You know, that to me suggests that there's a path forward, sort of a center way through the the extremes on either side. Well, where those usually degenerate is, is over the interpretation of the protections afforded the religion. And what then happens is the secular progressives come in and say, oh, no, you're only protected to what actually goes on in inside the church or, the, you know, and, and yeah, you, you can you, you can insist that your priests uh, adhere to Christian doctrine, but you can't, you know, say you're the teachers in your school or what have you. And so there's this debate as to where the protections stop and end, and it becomes somewhat of a, of a, you know. That's democracy. What? That's democracy. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, but my point as all the ba- my basic point is that the, the risk today is not that uh, people uh, have no religion are being forced by by people of faith to practice religion. It's that the secular forces are trying to force people who have religious faith to accept their views on things and take action that is contrary to their to their conscience. You broke with Trump over the election, as we've discussed. Um, you broke with him over election fraud. Um, in the lead up to the election, you had been pointing to election fraud as a potential problem. And you pointed at the time to the dangers of using mail-in ballots. What was driving you to point to this potential problem that you saw? My concern that things were going to end up the way they did, and by that I mean this, people have to understand there are two separate questions. One question is, or one issue is, if you dilute the protections that are there to protect the integrity of the vote, if you water them down and make it easier to pull fast ones, okay? 
then it doesn't matter what actually happens. It doesn't matter whether there's actual fraud. People will believe there is. And so the issue of protecting the integrity is a, is a freestanding issue. Is law, if people think that the rules are diluted, they're not going to trust the results. And what everyone should be doing now in, this, in, our, in our divided country is to put as many protections as we can to assure the integrity of the vote. Because if we ever lose faith in the transfer of power, we're in a very dark place. But the question of whether there actually was fraud, okay, is a different question. It's a separate question. Right. And, and, and so the fact that I didn't see evidence of actual criminal fraud in the election is not in any way in tension with my concerns before the election that, there might have been. that we were diluting the protections and people weren't going to have faith in the outcome. Can I ask you, if you were looking back on it and how, how it turned out, where there were so many Americans that believed Donald Trump and believed his election fraud lies, even after the attorney general said there wasn't enough election fraud to have changed the outcome of the election. Do you think back at the times where you were raising the red flag prior to that and consider whether that helped lay the ground for people to distrust the integrity of the elections in the first place? See, on the, on the contrary, I think what did was the irresponsible behavior of the Democrats who, putting aside the question of fraud, were clearly monkeying with the rules and you using COVID as an excuse to do it, to tilt the playing field in ways that were unfair to the Republicans or which favored them. And people saw that kind of gamesmanship going on and that created the climate in which they did not have trust in the election. You have... You know, people know what the mail system is in this country. People have had experience with it, and they don't trust. They well, didn't trust the integrity of the system. Well, to the contrary, there are four states that had 100% mail-in voting. I'm from one of them, Colorado. Right. People have a really high degree of faith in the electorate, election integrity in those states. Well, it depends on what kind of system you have. If you have a system where you fill out applications and to get the ballot to mail in, that is a pretty good security system. And the states that have done that are not a problem. And I said that publicly, okay? What I objected to was universal mailing out of ballots. I was arguing against the what I considered to be the irresponsible, really incendiary tactics of the Democrats, which is to essentially try to run elections on an honor system. And I'm saying, you do that and no one's gonna trust the results period. And to raise that red flag was the right thing to do, to try to stop that kind of irresponsible behavior. You left the Trump White House in mid-December, just after the Electoral College had voted, and you wrote in your book, quote, without minimizing both the stupidity and shamefulness of what happened, you're referring to January 6th, at the time, I did not think the Republic was in genuine danger. Mm -hmm. Was it? I don't think so. In, 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 sense on of January, in sense on January sixth, was the republic in genuine danger? You know, I don't really think so. I think I think it's a little over dramatic. You know, I didn't I didn't see it as a as something that was threatening a coup at the time. In hindsight, not. I mean, I, I think the thing was the typical uh, exercise. It was the way things operate when Trump is directly in charge of something, and there are not people who know what they're doing involved. Well, it was a mess. It was it was a Keystone Cop ops operation. Well, no. Well, now I'm thinking about the riot at the Capitol, though, and the fact yeah. that violence actually impeded the peaceful transition of power for a time. Well, I mean, there was a delay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I but I didn't think you know that that you know our country was going to fall apart because of that, or that the republic was or, in or danger. That, you know, there was going to be a coup. On January 6th, you put out a statement. But, you know, I was very censorious about the whole thing. I, I think, and I've said, look, if there's evidence that uh, people in the government, the White House, the president, whatever, were part of a scheme to use violence to delay the count, that that would be a crime. And people should go to jail for that if it can be proved. I would see the evidence yet. On January 6th, you put out a statement before anyone else in the administration. And then the next day, you also put. Well, I was at home. I wasn't in the administration. You were. I, you weren't. You were at home, but you were watching on television. <laughs> right. And you you write in your book that you were surprised mm -hmm. that your 
you put in a statement before anybody else in the administration. And then the next day, you said in an additional statement, orchestrating a mob to pressure Congress is inexcusable. The president's conduct yesterday was a betrayal of his office and his supporters. Do you still believe that? Yes, absolutely. But I, you know, I, I wouldn't take that, and I believe that, and I, and I think that we should make sure that there was no scheme to interrupt the the count. The count. It looked to me like a lot of chaos, as usual, when you're dealing with Trump. There may have been some of the demonstrators who had that plan. Uh, and they have been indicted for that. But it was more than chaos. I mean, six people died. And well, there's a real question about had any member of Congress or Mike Pence come across any of those rioters, whether they also might have been violently attacked. Yeah. I just, I feel it is an exaggeration, a little bit of melodrama to to treat this as uh, the virtual or, you know, almost the collapse of the American government or the overthrow of the government. I thought it was a stupid, uh, reckless uh, uh, behavior by the people involved. Uh, certainly, the president, I think, precipitated it, whether he legally incited or not, he precipitated the whole thing. And, uh, you know, I <laughs> let it be known what my views were. Yeah. In September, you said the Justice Department was getting close, you said, quote, getting close to having enough evidence to indict Trump in the classified documents investigation. But you also said you hope they don't indict him. In your view, is there ever a circumstance where you think is appropriate to indict a former president? Oh, yes. Um, you know, if a former president commits a crime, you know, especially a serious crime, uh, they should be indicted for it. Uh, my, what I was saying there was that I was a little worried because people may view this as a technical paper violation about documents and they'll point to the, you know, the uneven treatment of Hillary Clinton and Trump and it will, uh, you know, divide the country and uh, uh, diminish the the presidency a little bit. And I and I said, as attorney general, you know, those are fair things to think about when you're exercising discretion. On the other hand, you know, it is, uh, if the Department of Justice can show that these were indeed very sensitive documents, which I think they probably were, and also show that the president consciously was involved in misleading the department, deceit, you know, being deceiving the government, um, and playing games after he had received the subpoena for the documents, that's, those are serious charges. That's a serious That's enough, serious. That's a serious well, enough I, I said that I, I personally think that they probably have the basis for legitimately indicting the president. I don't know. I'm speculating. You're speculating. Yeah. But, but given what's gone on, I think they probably have the evidence that would check the box. They have the case. And if they have it, should they? That's a decision for... Uh, if you were AG, would you? I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> Why not? I just, you know, I'm not going to. Okay. Do you think they will? I think it's becoming increasingly more likely. And you think it would be appropriate if they did? Well, it's, it's this is what the attorney general gets paid, these kinds of decisions. You know, the argument for doing it is that if you let someone like this who, you know, if the facts are as raw as they may be, and you let someone get away with it, uh, how can you protect these secrets? How can you insist on people in government taking this stuff seriously? Uh, so, you know, that's an important thing to weigh, as well as what the, you know, what it will do to the country and to the office of the presidency. And I think uh, Merrick Garland is going to have to make that call. If Trump returned to the presidency and he had an attorney general who was willing to treat the Department of Justice as an extension of his own personal legal team. What would it look like? Well, first, I don't think that person would end up getting confirmed uh, because I think there are enough conscientious senators, Republican senators. I'm very, uh, you know, I, I admire the Republican senators. It's a great group of people. And there are enough of them that would take their duty very seriously and would not confirm someone like that. If Donald Trump were the nominee for the Republican Party again, would you support him? 
Well, I'm just hoping it never comes to that because I think it would be a tragedy if he's our nominee, if he's the Republican nominee. Um, Could you vote against him? Could you vote not for the Republican if Donald Trump were the Republican nominee? Well, again, I think it gets down to what I said, which is I would have to make the judgment at that point, the impact on the country, and I'll have to see what's going on in the world, what who the Democratic nominee is. If it's a progressive Democratic nominee, I can't imagine voting for But him. ideologically progressive versus somebody who orchestrated an attack on the Capitol, whom betrayed his oath to the Constitution, as you said in your words, you still might vote for him. Mm -hmm. Depending on all this, I, it's hard for me to project what the future holds. What are, are we in the middle of a war in Europe? Are we, you know, are the Chinese have, uh, are they in the midst of invading Taiwan? Uh, and you think Donald Trump would be a reliable, you think used? Donald Trump could be in some unique set of circumstances, a reliable hand at the tiller of the ship of state? Well, the, again, the, the, you know, the question is always a comparative one. You have to make a choice between two people. I don't believe in throwing my so vote away on a third party. So you don't okay? rule it out. I don't rule out what? You don't rule out supporting President Trump again. No, I don't. Depends on the circumstances. I pray that that doesn't come. Uh, you know, I think the reason our republic is in jeopardy is because we are not throwing up the best and the brightest for these offices. We're not giving the American people good choices. Too frequently, they're picking the lesser of two evils. And uh, we can't last very long if that continues to happen. Attorney General William Barr, thank you for joining me on Firing Line. Okay, thanks. Thank you.